This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you for being with us. This show is, in my view, upfront, up close, and uplifting. Cam Maitland is a cinephile. Now, hold on. That's actually a good thing. He is Hollywood Suites film and content specialist. He's also a writer, a filmmaker, an interviewer, and the host of many in-depth shows about movie making. Cam's deep knowledge of the film industry and his passion for the silver screen combined gives us a front row seat to some of the best movies ever made. The much-anticipated award season has just begun delayed, yes, because of the pandemic, but finally underway. Here with what to expect this year and more about the magic of movie making is Hollywood Suites' Cam Maitland. Thanks for joining us in conversation, Cam. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I would suspect that one of your favorite sayings is, and the winner is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's always been, I think when you're young, award season is great because you find out what the movies everyone loves are, the movies you're supposed to watch. And as you get older, I mean, it's all (laughs) betting and uh, thinking what's coming next. And this has become your work, your employment, it's your business to to understand show business and help us understand it as well. Let's go back in time together, shall we? When did you first realize that you love sitting in the dark with the curtain opening? It goes from left to right, right to left, and <laughs> enjoying the movie sensation. Uh, I think, you know, my parents were obviously a big influence on that. I remember going to the theater very young. Uh, I remember my dad taking me to the Three Stooges, <laughs> just like a film festival. Uh, I think I also, growing up uh, in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of revivals of classic movies then, kind of when VHS was becoming big. Uh, they used to do a lot of theatrical reshowings of old movies. But I also think cable TV in the 90s was a huge deal. Uh, the showcased Rambui review back in the day used to be great. Uh, I used to have a VCR, and I would just, you know, look at the listings of what's coming on cable and record anything that I was sleeping through and then watching it the next day. So I think uh, my parents really encouraged it. They really encouraged uh, caring a lot about the arts. Uh, and eventually that just kind of took over more and more. I, I went from music to theater, and then just focused on film for the rest of my life. What, for you, was the difference between watching television and the movie theater experience? Oh, wow. I mean, the movie theater was also just such a a great place to be. I think there's a social aspect to it, strangely, considering that I I love to sit very silently in the films. But you would always go with friends. I know uh, growing up in Edmonton, we had a dollar theater on Friday nights, so you could go and just watch, you know, three, four movies with your friends and hang out in the lobby and talk about it after. So I think that there's something about the shared aspect of the cinema experience, which I think is very important and you don't quite get as much at home. Was there a movie when you were growing up that kind of rocked your world, that maybe changed the way you looked at things or helped you determine your direction in life? Yeah, you know what? Uh, I think probably uh, Billy Wilder's The Apartment, which kind of remains one of my favorite movies, Um, just because it was a classic movie. It was black and white, but it felt so contemporary and so exciting. It also, 
you know, had stars that I recognized as older people, but playing these young people at, at that age, uh, just so exciting, so relatable. And it's also a movie that manages to be very funny and very dark and real at the same time. So I think just seeing how much a single movie could do uh, really excited me and really showed me the potential of classic movies to connect with a modern audience. And there's nothing like a classic movie. For me, it's To Kill a Mockingbird. And it's one of the few times when a book and a movie were equally impactful. Yeah, totally. It's a, it's always beautiful when that comes together. <laughs> Let's talk about the 80s, the 90s, 2000, the, the, the next decade, and we're now in 2021, how movie-making and the star system has changed, whether it has improved in your view or deteriorated. What do you, what do you think? I, you know what? I, I guess I'm always a little optimistic that, that just things change. You know, I, I don't think it's deteriorated. It's definitely different and I think we're, at the moment, kind of trying to figure out what comes next. A lot of people point out that there just really aren't stars anymore. Um, you know, somebody like Tom Cruise and like Denzel Washington, they're kind of the last big stars that can open a movie. And maybe that's better. Maybe that's democratization. Maybe we're, we're seeing more interesting and diverse voices, and you'll just have, you know, more people that have pull rather than that one big thing. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting. And I mean, obviously with this year, we're really seeing a massive shift in, in just how the film and, uh, viewing industry works. You've met stars in your work when you interview and when you travel and when you host, what's that experience like for you? Are you able to remain the calm cam that I know so well, <laughs> or is the little boy in you going, yippee, I'm meeting Tom Cruise or Denzel Washington? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's very strange. It, it, it actually, it's hard to get as excited almost. I tend to, the, my interviews are all on red carpets. So you're, you know, stressed out. It's your job. And it's very funny because you're seeing these celebrities in a very job mode. So often as an interviewer, what you're trying to do is to crack through that shell very quickly and uh, get something interesting and unique and authentic out of them. So it really requires you to both appreciate that they're there doing a job, they're not the amazing person that you dream of, and also to appreciate that they're a real human being. <laughs> so you have to see, like, are they cold? Are they happy? Like, what, what's the best way to approach them? It's really kind of dissecting them as a person. So it kind of deflates that celebrity bubble. Yeah, we elevate them because we're fans, and we forget that they're human beings just like us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if I am cold, they are cold. <laughs> so that's <laughs> what I tend to remember. And I'll bet that makes you an even better interviewer because they can relate to that and you can relate to them. Yeah, I do think it matters. Like being able to connect like that suddenly just opens up uh, just new thoughts coming out of their mouth. And it's really exciting. Was there anyone on the red carpet that up to this point has left you gobsmacked where you absolutely were stunned and and didn't know what to say? <laughs> um, you know what? Uh Kristen Scott Thomas kind of took me off guard. <laughs> she had an energy I didn't expect. Uh, I've often managed to get interviews with big international directors, 
I think sometimes because I'm on a red carpet for an English language uh, award show and people are a little less interested. Um, but those people, I love international movies. Those are my thing. So talking to somebody like Luca Guadagnino um, is amazing. And those people tend to kind of blow me away. <laughs> I don't know if you dreamed about the job that you have right now and the world that you're in right now when you were a, a much younger man, a little boy. But is it what you expected? Um, I think I would say that like any job, I think you eventually, you have to accept that some of it is a job, but yeah, I, I don't think I ever did dream of it. I'm kind of a person who came to their work through like by hook and by crook, just kind of doing this and doing that. I think Canadian media is a lot like this. Uh, I, you know, I was an improviser and that helps with my interviewing skills. I was a filmmaker so I can kind of understand some of the behind the scenes stuff. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a unique process getting here. And I do often have to remind myself that it's a real dream job to be able to watch movies and talk to people like this. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess I never would have expected that this was a job when I was younger. You're also a television star. I watch you faithfully and I love your work <laughs> and I love watching you explain and dissect and, and, and your, your historical knowledge of films is just incredible. So does that give you a little taste of what the, the movie stars and television stars go through, you being a star yourself? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it absolutely does, actually. I, I definitely appreciate much more, for instance, like a press junket. Like, I know the amount of stress, I'm sure you do too, like sitting down and talking to somebody for just 15 minutes can be so intense for you as an interviewer. Uh, but yeah, when you're sitting down in front of a camera all day, <laughs> man, oh man. Uh, yeah, our show, we probably film maybe four or five hours. We have a big lunch. It's all very nice and, and casual. But still, I want to go sleep for about a day and a half after we're done. So I definitely realize that there's a, a power a lot of these people have um, and an energy that is just astounding. What is it about film that is so attractive to so many of us, the movie experience? Why do we love it so much? I think it's just the fact that it is kind of a, a mashup of all of the arts you're getting visuals, you're getting acting, you're getting music. It all comes together. I think it, it provides an experience for the senses like few other things. Maybe nowadays, you know, virtual reality, video games are kind of immersing you in different ways. But before that, I really think that cinema managed to kind of take theater and that immersiveness and bring it to just everyone. For me, it is true escapism and i am i have no problem admitting that i love to escape the reality and that's what a movie does for me yeah i, I yeah i agree i love that i can travel you know without leaving the couch <laughs> I, i'm not somebody that has traveled the world but i i definitely love seeing different places and different cultures and, and just trying to understand them through cinema all right, February 2021, we are in a totally different dynamic right now. The world is changing every minute, and not a lot of it is great at this point. But the Golden Globe nominations came out recently. That was kind of a, a, a way to just kind of go back to some sort of normalcy. That's how I felt. What were your thoughts about 
those nominations, did anything stand out for you in terms of the people who were nominated, the shows, the films that were nominated, and just the way it was unfolding on the day of nominations? Yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting because on the day of nominations, it was very easy to see the snubs. Um, I think especially, obviously, what the Internet really picked up on was uh, the limited series I May Destroy You, not really getting anything. Uh, it, probably the most critically acclaimed series of the year, um, which definitely was unusual. Um, also, Defy Blood, Spike Lee's film, really shut out. Uh, I think the interesting thing is it's for a year where there was so much interesting content by diverse people, the nominations are not so diverse. But at the same time, I think with a little more time, uh, you can be pretty impressed with stuff like uh, there's three women in the directing category, two women of color, and those are only the six through eight women ever nominated. So as much as I think we're all tired of incremental change when it comes to these diverse nominations, uh, it, it is changing uh, slowly. But the other interesting thing is just the fact that so many of these movies are out and so many of these movies are accessible to whoever wants to watch them. Interesting. And that is key, I think, to how things are going to unfold this year. How people are watching these films, not in the traditional way. And some people, movie fans, might never see some of the films that are up for best motion picture drama, best motion picture uh, uh, musical or comedy. They may never see these films. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting, and also knowing that so many of these movies, and I, I think especially actually the critically acclaimed ones are still coming. So usually we wait for the award season to happen, and whoever wins the award uh, is the one that gets the kind of box office boost. But I think people know that movies like Minari and Nomadland and The Father are coming out this month ahead of award season uh, on VOD. So I think it'll be interesting to see if the nominations now affect the box office because we don't have to wait until after the awards to see these films. Cam, are you hopeful that someday we might even end up in the same movie theater, but that we all will be able to be <laughs> to put our bottoms on the seats of the, the movie theaters right around this glorious nation and really around North America that we can go back to the movie experience? Oh yeah, I mean, I think it'll it will feel so <laughs> so exciting and unusual. But I definitely like I, the thing I'm most worried about. I think the film industry can can find ways to work, but I, yeah, I'm most worried about, especially my local single screen theaters. Um, just just to hope that they stick around, and then I'm going to be sure that I'm right in line when they open up again. Oh, I'll be right behind you. You're much taller than I am. Maybe I'll stand in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood Suites film and content specialist, Cam Maitland, thank you for joining us in conversation. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, a poet laureate. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 105.9 The Region. Amanda Gorman, U.S. National Youth Poet Laureate, captivated the world when she recited her poem, The Hill We Climb, at President Joe Biden's inauguration last month. 
That magical moment left many of us wondering, what is a poet laureate and are these prestigious honors bestowed upon poets here in Canada? The answer, a resounding yes. Please welcome to In Conversation, Collingwood, Ontario's Poet Laureate, Claudia Ferrero. So glad you're with us. Thank you so much, Anne. I'm so happy to be here. This is my first ever radio talk show. Well, my first ever interview with a Poet Laureate. So we're both a sweaty palms on this one. How about that? <laughs> That's amazing. Lots of firsts. I actually wanted to be a radio DJ when I was younger. So this is giving me some nostalgia for sure. Well, you're still young and, you know, the world is your oyster. So don't ever put those dreams away. But let's focus in on being a Poet Laureate. What exactly is a Poet Laureate? So I actually came to know the term relatively lately too. Um, a Poet Laureate is essentially a poet that's officially appointed by a governing body to act as sort of a voice and ambassador for poetry in that particular area. And typically they go for a two-year term. So the role traditionally more includes writing and reading poems for specific events and occasions, like we saw Amanda Gorman do with the inauguration and at the Super Bowl. But in um, smaller municipalities like Collingwood, the one that I'm acting in, it also entails sort of bringing poetry to the community because uh, a lot of the times it's not really already there. So this is by ways of workshops, readings, events, collaborations. Right now I'm working on a few poetic art installations in my town, started a social media page. So it can include many things, but mainly it's about being an advocate for poetry's presence in the social and political spheres of that area. And these are crazy times. Let's not uh, even forget that. How important, how important is the reading of poetry, the writing of poetry, and the listening to poetry? How important is that right now? Hugely right now. I am um, one of my favorite American poets, Ada Limon, um, described poetry last week as radical hope. And this is something that I've really been holding on to, too. It's the thing that has gotten me through this past year, not just writing it, but also reading it has been such a lifeline for me. Um, it forces me every day during this pandemic to kind of look closely between the cracks in this pavement for some hint of green thing poking through that I can focus in on and write about. And um, as well, just seeing that there are so many other writers out there who choose to use their words in this careful way, in a way that is defiant of the sensationalized or agendaed speech that we see so much of in the media, there are those that still want to write in love and truth and hope. So going back to the collections of some of my favorite poets has been such a lifeline for me during all of this. I know that people like Joni Mitchell have influenced you. Talk to me about that. Yeah, well, I grew up in um, a big musical family. A lot of my seven siblings uh, write and produce music. And so I was surrounded by a lot of lyricism and songwriting, um, like Joni Mitchell and Martha Wainwright and Alanis Morissette. They used language in this really wild way that was poetic and so emotive. And their lyrics held these power over the music uh, because of the words, they created this rhythm and this feeling and this melody. And to me, that is poetry. So I think growing up, I wasn't taught it in school. I was always um, taught more traditional academic writing. And so this was my way of sort of breaking free from that as well as entering into 
the world of music and aesthetics without really having a foothold on an instrument, per se. Wow, it's almost like poetry just listening to what you've just said to me right now. It's incredible. (laughs) When did the poetry bug bite you, if you will? Mm -hmm. I think a time that I can kind of pin down would be in high school when I found this channel on YouTube that's called Button Poetry. And it's where a lot of spoken word artists come and perform their pieces. And a few of the artists that I was listening to were Olivia Gatwood and Sabrina Benane. And it was my first look at this extremely sort of old and academic form of art in such a modern landscape, talking about modern issues, using modern words, and being told by extremely modern girls. Um, And I've always kind of looked at myself as like a mix between this extremely old male professor in like a tweed jacket and then this like modern grunge fairy character. So this was like definitely where I belonged. I was like, ah, these are my people. (laughs) Your peeps. So, Claudia, in this day in age full of technology and instant gratification, where and how does poetry fit in? Well, I think... um, Nowadays, poetry can be found anywhere. Like I mentioned before, I just started an Instagram page for my specific town. And online, on YouTube, on Instagram, um, I'm sure many people have heard of Rupi Kaur. It's this whole new way of bringing this um, old academic art form, you know, dusting it off and allowing it to be applicable in our day and age, in our bodies, in this pandemic. Um, So it really is everywhere. And I love the uninstitutionalized nature of poetry. You know, even when I was taking it in university classes with my professors who were accredited poets, I was always given this respect and authority over my work. And I think that's what's amazing about poetry is there isn't this clear hierarchy or a huge amount of dues you have to pay. Young females like myself and Amanda Gorman can hold these positions and have these seats at the table, so to say. So anybody can be producing this and sharing it nowadays. What did Amanda Gorman's presence on the world stage in January, the 20th, Inauguration Day, what did that mean to poet laureates around the world and right here in our own backyard, you in Collingwood? Yeah, I think it was huge because um, it sort of gave, it was a, I think poetry has always been a space for marginalized language because it refuses to adhere to the sort of traditional ways that this vessel of communication works, which is to silence those who speak any different. And um, so in that way, Amanda Gorman's presence was such a promising place for marginalized voices because there are no boxes that they must fit into or criteria they, they have to meet. There is no specific language or composition or person or government who has a hold on poetry. So in my opinion, it seems like a pretty good tool for the oppressed or the marginalized to be using. You take what's going on in and around your world, around the world, you take it to heart and you put pen to paper. And I, I almost think that you almost literally put pen to paper the old-fashioned way, which I approve of, quite frankly. <laughs> yes, when, I do, I do. When we first conversed about this interview, what was your, your poetic reaction? I think... Um, It was a reminder to me because I have been quite alone during this pandemic and I write poems to go down into myself, but it was a nice reminder that I also write poems 
to reach out to others as a way of saying, oh, me too, I see you, I witness you, and I honor you. And that's what we need right now when we can't hold on to one another. It's this different attempt at intimacy in a world that can feel especially harsh. Wow. I want to thank you, Claudia Ferraro, Collingwood, Ontario's Poet Laureate, for joining us in conversation. And you're going to help us say goodbye to this interview by reciting something that I think is very near and dear to us here at 105.9 The Region in conversation. Can you set the stage and I will say farewell. Thank you so much, Anne. This is a poem that I wrote after speaking with Anne earlier this week when we were speaking about getting bogged down by this feeling of unending winter that I think a lot of people, Canadians especially, are feeling right now, not having that warm air as refuge from our places of quarantine. So this came out of a comforting thought I kept coming back to, that in a few short months, spring will come to our aid again. And it's titled, Let's Start at the Very Ending. In the end, after loss and all the lingering, after sweeping piles of petals delight in their decay, look at how the earth, still new to call this day. In the end, through the end and after the end, when everything grew small again, the game was on again. The light only shone one way. Roads took off their clothes, became the traveler, and forgot the word narrow. Entire oceans turned to droplets, lost their wallets, and feasted on marrow. Blue got rid of their landline, got in touch with their therapist, and learned to swell. Green grew long hair like a hippie, stopped counting, taught strands how to weld. In the end, other worlds rolled to meet them, not lagging or bumping into anymore. In the end, zipping past centuries in a single song through a swinging door. Look, then, at how breaking is just another way to expand. Look, in the end, at how every bruised body rises for another dance. Poet laureate Claudia Ferrero, blending the melodic beauty of poetry with the harsh reality of life today, and film aficionado Cam Maitland still finding strength and purpose from the silver screen. Bravo, bravo. Bye for now. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.